We do not accept that our blood or the blood of our sons be used for political purposes. A third straight day of U.S. missile and airstrikes are leading to increased tension and anger in Iraq and elsewhere. For Sunday, February 4th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Want to drive in NASCAR? Play more video games. There isn't really a sport that I can think of that more closely represents the real action to the virtual one. We'll also look at how the mezcal boom is making wild Mexican agave harder and harder to find and what that means for the popular drink. The exact thing that is so desirable is the thing that there's almost nothing left of. Plus, what comes next in Georgia now that Fulton County's prosecutor has admitted to having a personal relationship with the attorney leading the criminal case against Donald Trump. First News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will stand up to U.S. pressure when Washington makes proposals he doesn't agree with. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Biden administration supports Israel on most, though not all, issues in the current war in Gaza. In remarks to the Israeli cabinet that were released publicly, Netanyahu said, quote, we make our own decisions, even in those instances where there is no agreement with our American friends. The Israeli leader did not provide examples. The Biden administration wants to send more military aid, but has also called on Israel to do more to prevent Palestinian civilian casualties in Gaza. In addition, the U.S. says there needs to be a pathway toward a Palestinian state, while Netanyahu repeatedly expresses opposition to Palestinian sovereignty. Netanyahu said his top priority remains the destruction of Hamas. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Texas Governor Greg Abbott met with Republican governors from several states who are backing his decision to bar CBP officers' access to a small park in Eagle Pass. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton has more. Governor Abbott says he's protecting his state from what he calls an invasion of migrants. Uh, we are guaranteed by the United States Constitution the right of self-defense uh, if states face imminent harm or invasion. Texas obviously is facing both an imminent harm uh, as well as an invasion. Texas Democrats and local residents say the only invasion has come from the right-wing groups that have converged on the small border city in response to what they call Abbott's dangerous rhetoric about immigration. Some of those folks were confrontational. Uh, there were threats that were made against a CBP facility that had to be evacuated. That's Congressman Joaquin Castro. He and other Democrats say they're concerned about the growing right-wing militia presence in the area, leading to more violence. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. In California, forecasters say the slow-moving atmospheric river, the strongest winter storm of the season, is still gaining strength. It's already dumping heavy rains along with strong gusty winds. Heavy mountain snow is expected along with possible landslides. Evacuation warnings and orders are up for parts of four counties, including Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, and Ventura, where resident Tallulah Fisk says they've seen their area become flooded before. It can get really bad. Like this entire street was like a river last year and that whole building next door, just the bottom floor completely flooded. Residents are being told that if they can, they should stay home. Already more than 200,000 customers are without power. The National Weather Service says life-threatening and damaging flash flooding is likely across much of the central southern part of the state through tomorrow. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. School will reopen in Newton tomorrow, but an hour later than usual. The teachers' strike closed the schools for more than two weeks. The job action is ending after the union and school committee agreed to a tentative four-year contract. The school superintendent says classes will start an hour later to give teachers and school principals time to discuss how to welcome students back. A former Quincy resident will be in court tomorrow in connection with the arson of local Jewish institutions back in 2019. Alexander Giannakakis was extradited from Sweden last week. His younger brother became the primary suspect in those arsons in Arlington, Needham, and Chelsea. His brother died before the investigation concluded. Prosecutors said Giannakakis concealed evidence when he was questioned and then fled to Sweden. At tonight's Grammy Awards, an album produced and recorded by local artists at a studio in Roslindale is up for the Best Engineered Classical Album. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports. Turkish-born musician-composer Mehmet Ali Sanakol recorded his genre-spanning symphony, A Gentleman of Istanbul, at Futura Productions, one of the top studios in New England. Now its owner, John Weston, is thrilled. He and the team of local engineers are being recognized with a Grammy nomination for their work. I think it's great the piece is getting much more attention from around the world because of this. Composer Sal Nicole agrees. I mean, what more can anyone who devoted their life to music ask for? The Boston-based string orchestra A Far Cry performed and commissioned the Grammy-worthy work. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Celtics host to Memphis at the TD Garden in about an hour. Clear skies, 20s overnight. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives, and the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Today, the United States announced a new strike on Houthi militants in Yemen. It is the third day in a row that the U.S. and its allies have targeted Iranian-backed armed groups following last week's attack against American soldiers in Jordan. In Baghdad, tension is rising between the U.S. and Iraq after U.S. airstrikes there killed at least 17 people. As NPR's Jane Araf reports, anger over the attacks could force the U.S. military out of the country. Here outside one of Baghdad's militia headquarters Sunday, this was the aftermath of the U.S. airstrikes. Militia fighters chanting, death to Israel, death to America. These are members of Iran-backed militias, now part of Iraq's official security forces. There's a convoy of ambulances making its way slowly down the street to a Shia mosque before the bodies are taken to be buried in the holy city of Nejaf. In front and behind are fighters waving Iraqi flags. They're chanting that America is the biggest Satan, that America is the enemy of God. 
Most of the fighters were killed in U.S. airstrikes overnight Friday on a militia headquarters in Iraq's western Al-Anbar province. The dead were mostly young men. The U.S. had announced before it would retaliate for Iraqi militia strikes on a base in Jordan last week that killed three U.S. service people. Most militia leaders had evacuated before the attacks. The U.S. deaths were red line for the U.S. administration. In a speech to the militia fighters, Falah al-Fayyad, the head of the official militia forces, made clear they have their own red lines. We do not accept that our blood or the blood of our sons be used for political purposes. We urge the prime minister to purge the Iraqi land of any foreign presence. The militias accuse the United States of being a threat to the country that hosts it, that rather than fighting the militant Sunni group ISIS, it's dragging them into its conflict with Iran. The government, backed by Iran-linked parties, agrees, and it's started talks for a timetable for withdrawal. The U.S. has said only that it's negotiating its troop presence in Iraq. A spokesman for one of the key members of the Iran-backed militias tells NPR his coalition has set a deadline for U.S. troops to leave. It must be completed before the start of the American elections, approximately a year. Part of the operations now are because of the presidential race. Sheikh Qadim al-Fartusi, spokesman for the militia Qatab Sayyid al-Shuada, says the U.S. administration is trying to score election points with the attacks. The militias have escalated their strikes on U.S. bases in Iraq, Syria, and recently Jordan to support the militant Palestinian group Hamas, which is fighting Israel in Gaza. In retaliation, the U.S. has bombed targets inside Iraq. All this is happening while a million Iraqis throng the roads walking to Baghdad for an annual Shia pilgrimage to the Qadimiyah Shrine this week. For most Iraqis, the strikes happened so far from their everyday lives that it hasn't made a huge impact. But here, outside the militia headquarters, it's personal. A young fighter carrying an Iraqi flag, Saif Saeed, tells us it's heartbreaking young men being killed. Why are they crossing continents to attack us? Why are they destroying our country? Since the Americans came, we have not seen anything good from them. When the U.S. invaded Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein two decades ago, Iraqis thought life would be better. But Saeed and other young people have grown up with different forms of war since then. Jane Araf, NPR News, Baghdad. The new NASCAR season got underway this weekend with a race at the L.A. Coliseum. And while the focus is on the track... A surprising development far, not far from pit row, is starting to get some attention. Video game racing. Jared Walker with The Broadside, a podcast from WUNC in North Carolina, brings us this story. Now, just five laps to go from Martinsville. It's the second to last NASCAR race of the regular season in 2022. A driver named Ross Chastain is in 10th place. And he's desperate to finish higher so he can make the cut for the playoffs. Ross Chastain trying to get by the nine. So Again. on the final turn of the final lap, he does something shocking. And the fight for the point right at the line. The one of Chastain past Hamlin. It was a video game move off into turn three. Instead of hitting the brakes like everybody else in the turn, 
Chastain slams his car into the side of the wall at full speed and blows past five other drivers at the finish line. The car is destroyed, smoke everywhere, and he advances to the playoffs. I have never seen anything like that before in my life. This is the wall ride. So the wall ride, you know, in video game land, you put your car right up against the wall and just gas it. Ray Smith is NASCAR's director of gaming and esports. He says the wall ride is a strategy drivers have used for decades in video games. And never thought it could be done in real life. And Ross Chastain pulled off one of the most iconic moves in motorsports. Iconic, incredibly dangerous, and now officially banned in the sport. It was clear to Smith and everyone else watching that day that the virtual world had crossed over to the real world in dramatic fashion. It almost doesn't look real. He's so it doesn't. So bad. Look at this. It, look, you're set, it looks like a video game. It doesn't look real. He's going so fast. But behind the scenes, racing games and simulators have been reshaping the sport for a while now. I'm Roger Carruth, driver of the 24 Wendell Scott Foundation Silverado in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series for GMS Racing. 21-year-old Rajah Karuth has a very untraditional background for a NASCAR driver. He's one of only a handful of black men on pit row. Most of his peers are white, and a lot of them come from racing families. They have these long lineages, many with roots in the South. In contrast, Karuth was raised in Washington, D.C., and no one else in his family has ever race cars. So I grew up being a fan, watching races on TV, on YouTube, playing NASCAR video games. And I didn't start racing online until I was 15 and then got my first real life start when I was 17. So really late compared to everybody else I race against. Most of his competitors began organized racing with go-karts when they were six or seven years old. Caruth closed that gap with the help of a hyper-realistic racing simulator game called iRacing. I saw iRacing at first was like the, just the next video game. Like it looked really cool and like I could just drive NASCAR on it. But then something big happened. When Caruth was a sophomore in high school, a fellow iRacing gamer, William Byron, signed a NASCAR Cup Series contract to race real stock cars. And really that was a moment that I realized like, well, this is my chance. And I've always wanted to race and I knew like this is what I want my career to be in my life's work. So that was my one shot. He trained obsessively on the game and became a dominant driver online. From there, he was identified by a NASCAR developmental program and got a chance to race real cars in some lower-level competitions. He's now part of a small but growing group of drivers who started their careers virtually. For who goes quicker on lap two, that'll move him up to sixth position, 23.136 seconds. There isn't really a sport that I can think of that more closely represents the real action to the virtual one. Steve Myers is an executive at iRacing. He says motorsports are truly unique in their ability to bridge those two worlds. You're using the same hand inputs, you're using the same foot movements, all of the same mechanical functions that you have to race in the real world, you're doing in the sim as well. Myers says developers have spent decades improving the graphics and the code in these games. They've gotten to a point where it's pretty close to the real-world physics of a race. And to heighten the realism, gamers are investing in rigs that include physical things like steering wheels, pedals, and gear shifts. 
he's seen some that cost $100,000. But the vast majority of our customers buy just a, a regular retail steering wheel and pedal set that you can get at Best Buy or Amazon or anywhere. And you just plug it into your PC, and those are anywhere from $200 to $300 typically. And you're literally racing within 30 minutes. And while $300 isn't cheap, it's pretty economical for race car driving. It can cost thousands of dollars a year to run a real car at the lowest level of the sport. And you're eventually going to get into a wreck. You know, you wreck a race car and you bend a frame, you're not putting that car back on track again. So again, you're talking now at ten dollars or $15,000 at the most basic level to be able to get a car back on track again. And that's just not realistic for 99% of the people in the world. These games are beginning to break down those huge barriers to entry for drivers, says Ray Smith, NASCAR's director of gaming and esports. We're going to be able to grow a whole new generation of talent. One that's more diverse, he says, and more skilled. Because they're going to be on the video game from four years old on, graduating into a simulator. As unlikely as all of this may seem, Drivers like Raja Karuth have proven that gaming is a viable road to the racetrack. I try and I work harder than anybody else I race against, and I have to bust my butt to get to their level because I haven't been doing it a quarter as long as them. So with that being said, I feel like if you put in the time and you apply yourself to learning the craft and learning the sport as well, then you can be as good as anybody. As long as you are not afraid of climbing into a real race car, and hurtling down a track at 200 miles an hour. For NPR News, I'm Jared Walker in Durham, North Carolina. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show. Experience The Huntington like never before in the intimate Masso Studio, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 23rd. Tickets and more info at HuntingtonTheater.org. Clear skies overnight uh, with temperatures dropping into the 20s. And uh, then tomorrow, sunny skies with temps in the mid-30s. Partly sunny, mid-30s on Tuesday. 36 in Boston. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden is in Las Vegas today after a win in South Carolina's Democratic primary yesterday. Nevada's Democratic primary will be held on Tuesday. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will stand up to U.S. pressure when Washington makes proposals he doesn't agree with. The Biden administration supports Israel on most but not all issues in the war in Gaza. And at the weekend box office, Argyle, the $200 million star-studded spy thriller from Apple Studios, debuted with just $18 million in ticket sales. That still, though, does put it in the top spot. It's far less than expected after critics slammed the movie. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. On the day he was arraigned in Washington, D.C. on felony charges for conspiring to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, former President Donald Trump didn't mince words. Uh, when you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. That word persecution holds particular meaning for many of Trump's Christian supporters. It shows up in the Gospels, and it's critical to understanding Christian identity. To understand how the theology of persecution intersects with American politics, NPR's Sarah McCammon spoke with Canada Moss, a professor of theology at the University of Birmingham. Being persecuted in Christianity because Jesus died in this unjust way, because the martyrs were executed, just being persecuted is a sign that what you are doing is right and good and that you have the support of God. And that means that this is a very powerful rhetorical claim. If Christians are succeeding politically, commercially, practically in their lives, then that's because God loves them and supports them. But if Christians are being criticized, uh, if they're being unsuccessful, if people disagree with them, then that's also a sign that they're in the right. Because if they can claim that as persecution, that's a sign that God is on their side. And the problem with that and the way that that functions in Christianity as opposed to other groups is that um, a powerful Christian group that claims that it's being persecuted can never fully be disagreed with about anything because disagreement is then understood to be um, a full-blown attack, a kind of religious war. You really can't can't lose either way. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely frame. a win-win um, state of affairs. It really is sort of part of the genius of Christianity. So we've talked about this idea primarily as a theological idea, but how does it turn into a political idea? So I think the first person to make it a political idea is a historian called Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a Christian bishop, and he was part of the court of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was the famous emperor who made Christianity legal and started to sort of Christianize the Roman Empire. The first and Christian Eusebius, nationalist, you could say. That That, that is right. And um, Eusebius wrote this church history um, during Constantine's reign. And one of the threads that he decided to weave through his sort of 300-year history of the church was that Christians are always 
always being attacked. They're constantly being persecuted. And the reason he did that was that in his own day, there were disagreements in the church. And so Eusebius presented the people with whom he disagreed, the heretics of his own day, as the successors to the persecutors. And so he has this kind of polarized vision of the world that's very rhetorically effective. Um, he can describe people with whom he disagrees as actually being like ravenous wolves attacking the church. And he does this to sort of advance very politicized church leaders. He does this to advance his own theological and political positions. But he really lays the groundwork for how Christians ever since have thought about themselves. And now let's move forward to the present. Where do we see this kind of politicized rhetoric around persecution? When does it start to emerge as part of the American political landscape? So to an extent, it's sort of baked into American identity. When you learn about America and its history, you learn about the pilgrims who came here fleeing religious persecution. But if you think about, say, just political discourse, it really sort of picks up in the 1960s when evangelical Protestants began to see themselves as persecuted because of the rising tide of cultural movements that they saw as antithetical to Christianity. I'm thinking feminist movement, the kind of secularization rise that you see in the 1960s. The sexual revolution. The sexual revolution, all of those kinds of things, women working, rising divorce rates, etc., etc. And then the 1970s, you see the religious right concerned about um, prayer no longer taking place in schools, about the Bible not being read in schools. And to the religious right, that felt like an attack. And that has only gathered increasing amounts of strength through the 1980s into the present when you think about things like um, LGBT rights and similar movements, these are construed as attacks on Christianity, as a sign that America is sort of moving away from her supposedly Christian roots. When Trump supporters, particularly those from a Christian background, hear him say he's being persecuted, he's being attacked, what do they hear in that? When they hear Trump talk about how he's persecuted, if they're already supporters of his, it's a familiar cry, one they've heard from the pulpit on Sundays. Uh, they identify with him because of it. And they start interpreting criticisms of Trump through that framework. And that means, for example, that when he gets indicted, as he has been, that just serves as evidence that he is being persecuted. So it's win-win for him. It's, it's like a, a dog whistle. Um, they hear him say that he's persecuted. They know what that means. They know how unjust it is. However legally justified any of these cases are, there is a substantial proportion of his supporters who will believe that this is nothing other than a crime against justice. Um, for Trump supporters, these indictments are crimes. They are crimes of persecution. That's fascinating. I'm thinking about that, and it's something that I've I've thought about and, and written about as well, but the reaching the apex in a way of political power 
is not an, any kind of cure for the sense of persecution, it seems. I think that's exactly right. It remains a really valuable weapon in the rhetorical toolbox that you can bring out if you're being disagreed with. If you think about the number of times that President Trump claimed that he was attacked during his presidency, to say nothing of right now, and the exaggerated claims that he was the most attacked political leader in history, which you can imagine Julius Caesar might disagree as he was murdered by a group of senators. Um, but this kind of inflammatory rhetoric, it's completely dislocated from historical events. And you can continue to use it as a way to kind of buffer yourself from any criticism, regardless of how powerful you are. Candida Moss is a theology professor at the University of Birmingham in the UK and the author of the book, The Myth of Persecution. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Cocktail drinkers in the U.S. have fallen more and more in love with a smoky spirit from Mexico called Mezcal. From the Mezcal Margarita to the Mezcal Mule, it's a favorite in American bars. And according to Mexico's Mezcal Regulatory Commission, demand for the spirit shot up 700 percent between 2015 and 2022. Now, unlike whiskey or vodka, which are produced from farm crops, the most top-shelf mezcal is made from wild agave. And wild agave is becoming harder to find, in large part because of how long it takes to grow and mature. Eight of the wild species that make mezcal are disappearing. Washington Post international investigative correspondent Kevin Seif recently traveled to Oaxaca, Mexico, to report on the shortage and what it means for Mexican distillers and American producers. Welcome to All Things Considered. Good to be here. I want to start with the thing that blew me away in the story, and that's just how long agave plants take to grow and mature. You're talking about upwards of you know 20 or 30 years before they're ready to be harvested and turned into mezcal. I mean, if one of these plants started to grow at the very beginning of this global mezcal boom, it would be nowhere near ready to harvest and turn into mezcal at this point. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that sort of gets at just how unprepared the mezcal industry as such was for this boom. You know, these are plants that take, as you say, decades to flower, decades to mature. And decades ago, mezcal wasn't a drink that anyone really was consuming in the U.S. or in Europe. And so the people who both grow the, the agaves that make mezcal and the people who distill mezcal are sort of trying to catch up. Let's take a step back for people who have not tried it before. Why is the spirit so popular and why at this particular moment? Right. Well, it's hard to describe the way that something tastes. Um, <laughs> and certainly mezcal, I guess, like anything, is sort of in the eye of the drinker um, or the palate of the drinker. But I think people who love mezcal will tell you that it tastes sort of unlike anything else. Tequila, even though it comes also from agave, it's not quite as smoky. It doesn't quite have the same intensity, especially of, an, of mezcal made from a wild agave. And so there really is something distinct about the taste of mezcal that I think a lot of people, particularly in the U.S., weren't exposed to until, you know, a year or two ago, um, especially during the pandemic when all of a sudden you could go to your local bar, your local liquor store and find a bottle of the stuff. So for people in Oaxaca, people who who cultivate these wild agave plants, at, at first this was almost certainly a good thing, right? More demand is a good thing. Is it at this point a negative or is it just a mixed situation with concern about the future? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say it's it's purely a good or a bad thing. I think on one hand, you know, Oaxaca is a state in southern Mexico, 
And historically, it's been one of the poorest parts of Mexico. So the idea now that you have a revenue stream and a really significant one is valuable, right? It's valuable to, to the people of Oaxaca. Um, that I think is a good thing. The trouble is that the surge in the demand happened really abruptly and that some of the demand at least is for these plants that are, I mean, in some cases on the verge of extinction. And so that's where you, you run into these really serious problems of biodiversity, where the exact thing that is so desirable is the thing that there's almost nothing left of. So how are people in Oaxaca trying to fix this? To be honest, there are some places in Oaxaca where this is sort of seen as a gold rush and people want to make as much money as they can before before it's gone, before there are no wild agaves left. And that, in some ways we could say is sort of irresponsible. In other ways, it's understandable. But you do see pockets of Oaxaca, pockets of sort of the mezcal industry in Mexico that is trying to find a way to, to make mezcal in a more sustainable way. So the way that looks is that you've got people who are developing banks of seeds of agave plants that will produce mezcal and these are plants that basically at this point don't exist in the wild. And so people are saying, let's let's keep as many of these seeds as we can in a place where we can sort of grow them in the future. We can grow them in a way that maybe is not completely wild, but is semi-wild. And at least that way, these plants will exist. These subspecies will exist in the future. In other cases, you've got sort of kind of reserve land in Oaxaca and other parts of Mexico where people are being very diligent about how much agave they cut down. They're sort of being more careful about, you know, let's make sure we, we leave enough, especially enough plants that will flower in the future. Because as you said, these are plants that in some cases take as long as 25 years to flower. But does that mean no matter what, there's going to be just a big decline in the agave that's ready to harvest in the coming years? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there's one in particular called espadine, which is, it can produce an enormous amount of mescal to feed this growing demand. I think what people will probably consume less of going forward is the kind of agave that people have to hike up mountains to find that in part because of the story behind it has become incredibly desirable. That's the stuff that I think we should expect to consume less and less of and potentially, you know, in 10 years, we maybe aren't consuming any of it. Your reporting team followed one person named Santiago around who's been doing this since, since he was seven. He's in his 50s now. How much has his life changed since this rush has begun? Going back, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, this was stuff that was made to be consumed at like local birthday parties by mostly rural, poor people in Oaxaca. It was the opposite of cool, you know? I mean, this was really local, really traditional. And so someone like Santiago grew up thinking of mezcal in that way, that this would never be a thing that would bring his family money. That's Kevin C. from The Washington Post. Thanks so much and cheers, I guess. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Caffeine is the most widely consumed drug in the world. Here in the U.S., according to a 2022 survey, more than 93% of adults consume caffeine, and of those, 75% ca consume caffeine at least once a day. I am drinking coffee right now, I will say. So why do so many people feel the need to cut back, though? Is all that morning joe something to worry about? LifeKit's Andy Tegel has more on understanding the effects of caffeine and tips for making sure your relationship with everyone's favorite psychostimulant is a healthy one. 
Caffeine gets a bad rap. You've heard the whispers. Caffeine stunts your growth, causes heart disease, or dehydrates you. But these rumors just don't ring true for the vast majority of us. Caffeine's real problem seems to be a bad case of guilt by association. Consuming a lot of caffeine is often equated with someone who's really stressed out and uh, working hard. And some of those other behaviors are actually more greater risk factors for health. And so it becomes what we call a confounder in some of this research. That's Marilyn Cornelis, an associate professor of preventive medicine and nutrition at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Someone who's drinking a lot of caffeine might be short on sleep. We know sleep is an important risk factor for a number of uh, diseases. Nicotine is another great example. Smoking and coffee consumption are highly correlated. A smoker will want to consume more coffee in order to get that psychostimulant effect. And we know that smoking is a risk factor for a number of, of health outcomes and diseases. Another important thing to note here, Dr. Ugo Oroku, a gastroenterologist in New York City, reminds us not all caffeinated drinks are created equal. A black coffee or green tea offer antioxidants and a slew of other potential benefits, for example. But syrupy frappuccinos, sodas, energy drinks. Do you have a lot of sugar um, and a lot of other contents that may not be helpful for you? Of course, we know it really depends on what you're taking uh, with your caffeine um, before the judgment comes in. You get the point. Caffeine in general is not a lone bandit out to steal your calm and crib your good health. But some of its closest cronies might be. Standing alone, caffeine actually offers a ton of potential benefits. It's thought that for every one cup of coffee you drink, um, there's a 3% decreased risk in arrhythmia. Caffeine is thought to protect your liver from cirrhosis and other liver diseases. Coffee consumption has been shown to reduce risk of type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's disease. It treats migraine headaches. And uh, the list goes on and on. So what does healthy caffeine consumption actually look like? The answer will be different for everyone. For her postdoctoral work, Cornella studied the relationship between the human genome and our coffee and caffeine consumption. We found that genetic variants that were related to increased caffeine metabolism were also related to increased caffeine consumption behavior. What that means is our appetite and tolerance for caffeine is written in our genetic code. So I might naturally be more of a one coffee a day person, and you might be more the three coffee type. We all have a caffeine sweet spot. But that's not a blank check to consume as much caffeine as you want. The Food and Drug Administration suggests a max of 400 milligrams of caffeine a day for the average person. The amount of caffeine in about four cups of coffee. Because that's an amount not generally associated with dangerous or negative effects. From there, listen to your body. Your body can give you feedback, you know, a jitteriness, anxiety, you know, a raised uh, pulse that you're just consuming too much in a given moment. If you do feel the need to make a change, Uroku says go slow, consider swaps, and don't be scared to experiment. Caffeine should be a helpful friend in your corner, not the boss of you. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tegel. More tips at npr.org slash life kit. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us on this Sunday evening. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour. Flowers on Valentine's Day or flowers every month beginning on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift and support WBUR at WBUR.org. Clear skies overnight, temps dropping into the 20s, sunny mid-30s tomorrow, partly sunny mid-30s on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 36 degrees. 
Join here and now's Robin Young on Tuesday at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Daniel Mason about his hit novel, Northwoods. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Regent Theater in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events. Tickets and info at regenttheater.com. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to the Middle East again today, his fifth trip since the war between Israel and Hamas started in October. Hostage release and humanitarian aid access are topping his list. In central Chile, at least 64 people are dead in intense forest fires that are burning near a densely populated area. The country's president announced two days of national mourning starting tomorrow. And in Southern California, forecasters say the slow-moving atmospheric river is dumping heavy rains along with strong gusty winds. Heavy mountain snow is expected along with possible landslides. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. On Thursday, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis filed a 176-page motion in which she admitted to having a relationship with Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Willis hired Wade to lead Georgia's election interference case against former President Donald Trump and more than a dozen other defendants. And in the motion, Willis says there's no truth to the claims made by one of Trump's co-defendants that she had benefited financially from the relationship with Wade. It's Trump's trials. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This week, my colleague Miles Park spoke with NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, as well as Kim Whaley, a law professor at the University of Baltimore. Miles started out by asking Kim what she made of Willis's brief. Well, what I made of it is that there's a lot of resources now uh, going to this sideshow that's very unfortunate. When I say resources, there were lawyers that spent a lot of time filing this opposition brief about this relationship, appearance of a conflict of interest uh, between her and this prosecutor that she admits now in the filing she had an intimate relationship with. Um, two new facts. One is that she didn't have it apparently at the time he hired her and some of the trips and things she paid for herself. Legally, they make a strong argument that this isn't a conflict of interest that would disqualify her. Um, Usually it has to be much stronger. So it's not, I think, a basis for her to be disqualified, um, but it's damaging, you know, from the public's perspective. It's just an appearance of a lack of judgment, frankly. And once again, we're seeing in one of these cases, you know, a process that's just delaying things potentially. And that 
uh, for Donald Trump, um, who's a defendant, obviously, in this case, as well as January 6th and, and two others, delay is his best friend. Delay is his best defense on the merits and the facts. Right. Domenico, I mean, every time we talk about anything uh, on this podcast, there's always the legal ramifications and the political ramifications, right? And so do we have any sense of what the political impact so far has been of um, what Willis disclosed yesterday? Yeah, and to just pick up on some of what Kim was saying, I mean, the fact is a lot of politics is about character. And part of what you want to do is um, disqualify somebody else's character to say that, you know, they aren't running something that's above board. And if Trump can do that to muddy the waters, he can try to continue to make his case that, you know, he's being uh, politically pursued um, and that this is just, you know, in his words, a witch hunt. This was or is one of the strongest cases against Trump. I mean, remember, he's on tape, like we heard, you know, trying to overturn the results of an election that he lost. So the fact that we're even discussing the nitty gritty details of this personal relationship between Willis and uh, Nathan Wade is the very kind of distraction meant to muddy the waters that Trump wants. You know, it could mean another delay where we potentially you know, don't see a verdict before the election, which, by the way, lots of polls have shown that a conviction could make a difference with voters. Well, and it's not going away, right? I mean, I think that was one of my takeaways from this week is we started seeing the snowball start to build because at the Georgia state level and then also Congress, um, the House Judiciary Committee says they're going to subpoena her for a separate campaign finance matter. So there is this sense that Republicans at the state level and nationally are seizing on this. What do you think her future is long term? I mean, is it tenable for her to stay on this, Kim? Well, there are two options. One is the judge takes her off which I think on the law, as indicated, is unlikely. Or she could resign. Uh, That would be uh, option number two. Either way, it wouldn't make the case against Donald Trump go away, but it it could delay it well past the election and create this impression, as we've been talking about, of corruption. The thing to keep in mind on the law as well, though, is that even if he wins the election in November uh, legitimately and takes office in January, His ability to call off this prosecution, as well as the Alvin Bragg one in Manhattan, does not exist. Because it's at the state level. Um, With the federal claims, he can cancel them, right? He'll be in charge of the Justice Department. He does not have that power with the Georgia case. He does not have that power with the Manhattan trial, which probably will go before November. So even if she gets pulled off for one reason or another and he's in wins the presidency georgia could still be prosecuting a sitting president what do you think domenico do you think it's politically tenable for her to stay on no i mean some are arguing that she should step aside and take leave because in georgia if a da is disqualified then their entire staff is disqualified and could bring the entire case to a halt you know if she were to step aside that wouldn't happen. It could continue under someone on her staff, you know, in theory. Um, so she's taken a bit of a risk sticking with this case. And even if she's disqualified and someone else is appointed by this panel that Kim was talking about, you know, would they prosecute it to the same extent? Would they have the same, you know, uh, attempts at going after Trump or or the strength or length of sentences that they would be seeking? It's a, it's a big question, you know, and Willis and Wade, by the way, don't show any signs of this point of stepping aside. That was Miles Park speaking with senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, as well as constitutional law expert Kim Whaley. And be sure to tune in next week. It's a big week. We'll be covering the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments over whether or not Trump could be disqualified from being on the presidential ballot.
Mariachi music has a long, rich history. It's one that has many male heroes, but that is not who we're going to talk about today. Suzanne Hogan of member station KCUR has the story of a group of women who carved out their own place in the genre. She digs into it in the podcast A People's History of Kansas City. Take a listen. Mariachi music is deep and heartfelt. It's the music of Mexico. And for a short stint during the 1980s, Mariachi Estrella, a group of seven trailblazing women in Kansas, were a force who broke the mold in a male-dominated music scene. Women took this deeply patriarchal institution and kind of created their own space in it. Cristina Loya wrote her thesis about Mariachi Estrella. It's about her great aunts, who played in the group, and about other women in her family. How gender roles and expectations have shifted throughout generations of Mexican-American women's lives, and how Mariachi Estrella was a part of this shift. Even in Mariachi music, it's very masculine. And these women came in and disrupted that, you know? <laughs> Whether intentionally or not, it's very subversive and very powerful. It all started in a neighborhood in Topeka, Kansas, called Oakland, home to a large and vibrant Mexican-American population for generations. The neighborhood got its start at the turn of the 20th century, when a large wave of Mexican immigrants started coming into eastern Kansas due to political and economic upheaval caused by the Mexican Revolution. At its center point is Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, where Mariachi Estrella first started, as a choir group in the late 1970s. Violin player Teresa Cuevas had just divorced and was in her 50s at the time. The music was a part of me that made me feel like myself. Cuevas spoke to KCUR in an interview in 2006 with other surviving members, Rachel Galvin Sangalong and Isabel Boldi Gonzalez. I never heard anybody saying, let's start an all-female. It just happened that all of us that were in the choir were female. In 1980, a few choir members attended a mariachi convention in San Antonio, Texas, and that sparked the official flame, said Sangalang. We called it mariachi fever that we caught. <laughs> it's mariachi fever. I guess you either love it or, you know, it's just happened to strike a chord with us. Other members included Rachel's sister, Dolores Galvin, Isabel Boli Gonzalez's cousin, Dolores Gonzalez Cardmona, and Linda Skurlock, the only non-Mexican in the group who played the trumpet. She also, like founder, Teresa Cuevas, was recently divorced. And she said, you guys saved my life. And she started writing music for us. She had two little boys. She was so happy being a part of the mariachi. The women of Mariachi Estrella had a lot of fun together in those days. Their band was like a family. All the women, I think, I felt that they were very, they were women that knew what they wanted. They practiced hard, sounded good, and were getting more and more confident and getting asked to play more shows. Their performances were joyous affairs and they often brought their family along. But the band had been playing together for less than two years when tragedy hit. On July 17, 1981, Mariachi Estrella was invited to play at the new Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. The band was on their way to change into their costumes. But as Mariachi Estrella was walking across the second-story skywalk, the skywalk above them collapsed. 
That first skywalk fell on another below, and then they both fell to the floor. All of that occurred in just a matter of seconds. Most of the dead were either on the skywalks or dancing on the floor below. The Hyatt Regency disaster remains one of the deadliest accidental structural building failures in United States history, injuring more than 200 people and killing 114. Among them were four members of the group, Mariachi Estrella, Connie Che Alcala, Dolores Gonzalez Cardmona, Dolores Galvin, and Linda Skurlock. My daughter will tell you she saved my life. Member Isabel Boli Gonzalez, who lost her sister, cousin, and friends that day, says she was nursing her daughter at the time, so she didn't go to any jobs outside of town, so she wasn't there. Rachel Galvin Sangalong and Teresa Cuevas were there that day and ended up trapped in the rubble. Said, Padre Santo, ayúdame. And then all of a sudden the man said, she's alive, there's a live one. And I grabbed his hand and they dragged me out of there. This interview took place in 2006, more than two decades after the Hyatt Regency collapse. But you can hear how deeply traumatic and life-changing the experience was for all of them. Their bandmates who were lost that day were trailblazing women. And they were also mothers, sisters, daughters, educators, dedicated community leaders, friends. Obviously, very traumatic for the family. Christina Loya lost her great aunt and cousin. So shortly before her death, Connie Che was asked about what being part of Maria Chistria meant to her. And she said, it's in my heart. I just want to see it carried on. I don't want it to die out. Loya believes research like hers is a crucial part of keeping her aunt's dream alive. I felt that God had saved me and he had saved me so I could be a better mother. And after that, I devoted myself to my family. Teresa Cuevas was badly injured in the accident. But as soon as she was healed, she immediately started playing for the church again. The other members also continued to play there and eventually spun off to play with different mariachi groups. But Teresa Cuevas held on to the name Mariachi Estrella and focused on passing mariachi music to her grandchildren. And nowadays, girls have, you know, they can aspire to do whatever they want to. My granddaughter. Teresa Cuevas passed away in 2013 at the age of 93 years old. And her family says she played her violin and loved music all the way until the end. And Christina Loya is far from the only person keeping the spirit of this group alive. Other descendants are doing so with their music. My name is Maria Elena Cuevas, and I front the band Maria the Mexican. And that band is inspired by my time in the mariachi band with my grandmother, Mariachi Estrella. Maria and her sister, Teresa, who goes by Tess, are both named after their grandmother, whose full name was Maria Teresa Alonso Cuevas. The sisters both started playing with Mariachi Estrella as kids. Maria played the vihuela, and her sister Tess, like her grandmother, played the violin. So my sister and I always joke, we weren't asked. We were just simply told what we would do. Looking back, I'm really grateful for that. But I started performing in my grandmother's mariachi band at the age of 11. This is Maria the Mexican performing the traditional song El Cascavel, 
which was one of her grandmother's favorites. Maria says she still gets goosebumps every time they play it. She hopes that others will be inspired by her grandma's story. A woman who started an all-female mariachi band later in her life, overcame a major tragedy, and just kept going. So it's like, it's never too late. Marisol Chavez is another descendant who's trying to share that inspiration with younger generations. I'm a product coming from these women. It was her great aunt, member Isabel Boldy Gonzalez, who is still alive, who encouraged her at a young age to start playing music at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in the Oakland neighborhood where she grew up. That's where she taught herself different instruments. Later in college, she was at a crossroads in her life, not really sure what she should be pursuing. And I was like, you know what? No, I really want to be doing music. Now, she's a professional musician, performing in the group Mariachi Habanero. And she's a music teacher in the Oakland neighborhood, where she teaches all of her students about Mariachi Estrella. Growing up in this neighborhood, a lot of my students and a lot of just musicians in the area didn't know about Mariachi Estrella. So it's been like a goal and a mission of mine to like, make sure that I tell my students about mariachi music, about mariachi estrella, so that they're aware. As more and more family members, friends, and fans have taken up that responsibility to spread the story inspired by these women, in some ways it's a lot like mariachi music itself. It both serves as the background and center point for so many types of life events, from weddings, baptisms, funerals, church services, fiestas of all kinds, it's happy and sad. It can mean whatever it needs to mean to the individual in any moment. But at its core and best, it's meant to be shared. Suzanne Hogan is the host of A People's History of Kansas City. You can hear the full episode on Mariachi Estrella at kcur.org.